It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. In the spirit of the holidays coming up, I have a little gift. And that is an extra story today. I know, it's very generous of me. But uh, as we head into the weekend, got a lot to get to. Um, Making the usual last-minute changes to Media Buzz, which you can see on Sunday morning at 11 Eastern on Fox. And hope you have a good weekend coming up as well. So Prince Harry has won $180,000 in damages from his suit against the Mirror newspaper in London. He put out a statement saying he felt vindicated. The judge ruled that Harry's own phone, I mean, here's a guy who's royalty, right, was targeted between 2003-2009 that 15 of 33 articles were the result of phone hacking or unlawful information gathering. First high-ranking British royal in 130 years to testify in court as he gave information about the Mirror's efforts to dig up dirt on him. Okay, you know how we never know just how many people are watching a particular Netflix movie or series? Well, Netflix has now put out all this data. You know, it's like, okay, you want it? Here it is. Uh, for more than 18,000 movies and I guess you could call it television. Netflix is the new television, as is Amazon Prime and Hulu and all the others. So what would you think would be the most popular thing on Netflix? Well, let's see here. It's a show called Wednesday. Oh, that's number four. Season four of Stranger Things had more viewing time, but Wednesday, the total runtime was more than six hours shorter, so it ranks first in views. But also, you go through this, and about 21% of these 18,000 titles had between 50,000 and 149,000. Oh, 149,999, excuse me. Which is like a blip. I mean, Netflix is worldwide. Keep that in mind. So what, according to The Hollywood Reporter, was the least watched of anything on Netflix? Well, it seems to be a show called Making the Witcher, Blood Origin. 14-minute documentary. Uh, Let's see, the entry number 7,830, the British movie 71. One million hours of viewing. Yeah, that sounds like a lot, but, you know, compared to the number of subscribers who binge on Netflix. All right, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she made a mistake. And you know what the mistake was? She decided to have a holiday party 
and she sent invitations to members of the city council, but only electeds of color. And then this leaked. So how did this leak? The mayor handed off the job of sending out the invitations to a top aide who deals with the Boston City Council, which has six minority and seven white members. And this person sent the invitations to everyone. And then the white members had their invitations withdrawn. Now, does this sound like an effort at bringing unity to the city of Boston? Uh, the aide saying, I sent it to everyone by accident. I apologize. So sorry for any confusion. Michelle Wu saying this was an annual tradition to celebrate diversity. But it didn't quite end up that way, did it? New York Times has one of these zillion word pieces. Investigation over several months about how the Supreme Court came to dump Roe v. Wade. And let's see, December 15th, you know, you want to get in before the end of the year so that you can enter it for a Pulitzer. Believe me, I know how these things work. So just a few tidbits from this. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Although, you know, she is part of the three Trump appointees, she is part of the 6-3 conservative majority, she didn't even want to take the case. Well, first she voted to take it, but then she switched to no. But for male justices, chose to move ahead anyway, with Brett Kavanaugh providing the final vote. And then you had Sam Alito, who's the driving force behind this whole thing, who kind of had, you know, private meetings with others who agreed with him on the court, and put together this fragile coalition. Look, this is how the court works. You know, you're always trying to bring over people to your side. There are lots of private conversations. You use whatever leverage you have. So, Chief Justice John Roberts, obviously conservative, and Stephen Breyer, obviously liberal, tried to prevent or at least limit the outcome. Breyer even considered trying to save Roe v. Wade by significantly eroding it. In other words, let's not go all the way. Then there was the famous leak to Politico of the draft opinion. And the Times is saying it helped lock in the result, undercutting John Roberts and Steve Breyer's effort to find some kind of middle ground, which has always been my theory, which is that it was leaked by somebody on the conservative side, you know, could be a law clerk, obviously, or anybody associated with the court, to make it impossible for anyone to back down as opposed to coming from the liberal side. All right, story number one. I think the hottest story right now is the Rudy trial. Now, Rudy Giuliani, who's been sued for defamation, as you may know, by these two Georgia poll workers who say their life was ruined by the fact that he accused them publicly of tampering with election ballots in 2020. This is Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, mother and daughter. Ended up quitting their jobs, being fearful for their lives, lots of death threats. Uh, it's pretty ugly stuff. The thing is, 
Rudy has been saying every day, well, when I testify, I'm going to clear this up and I'm going to be vindicated when I testify. And he didn't testify. Perhaps his lawyers persuaded the former Trump attorney that it would just hurt the case, which is probably true. But a little bit of a shift in strategy. And as I'm speaking to you, the jury is deliberating. So it's possible by the end of the day, you know, juries often on Fridays want to go home for the weekend, that we'll get a verdict or not. But he's already been convicted. The entire trial is about setting damages. So Rudy's own lawyer said that Giuliani didn't take the stand out of respect for these two women who have been through enough. That sounds like a kind of a cover story. Argued that Giuliani shouldn't have to pay a catastrophic amount of money. They're asking for $47 million in damages because others were more responsible for disseminating the false claims. So there's no argument here from Rudy's own side that he didn't do this, except that Rudy went off the rails talking to a bunch of reporters this week and said, oh, no, no. They did this. They were guilty. They ballot tampering. I've got the evidence. Like, why would you do that when you've already been found guilty and you're just trying to get the amount of damages down and your own lawyer says this woman... Are good people who've been through enough. People who believe this stuff are still going to believe it no matter what, said Rudy Giuliani's lawyer. Mr. Giuliani is a good man. He hasn't exactly helped himself with some of the things that happened in the past few days. Look how pissed the lawyer must have been. He compared his own client to a flat earther who will never stop believing election lies. And he's almost 80, said his attorney. I have no doubt, said his attorney, that Giuliani's statements caused harm. No question about it. But he said who was really to blame was the very conservative website Gateway Pundit, which was the first to identify Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Gateway Pundit is also being sued by the two women. But the prosecutor said Rudy Giuliani could have stopped all of this. He called his clients heroes who stood up to a bully, saying, unlike some other people, they testified. And it was pretty wrenching testimony. I mean, you know, these two women, you know, had these nice jobs. They quit. They went into hiding at one point. They feared for their lives, the death threats I've mentioned. So we'll see how the trial comes out. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Story number two. Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, um, as everybody on the planet pretty much knows, certainly here in the States, 
um, tried to prove in this New York civil fraud trial that there was fraud involved, a whole lot of fraud. Trump took the stand when he did, not this week when he backed out, but in his original testimony as a prosecution witness, he just kept attacking Letitia James. He's called her a racist. She's African-American, as you probably know, many, many times. So now, with Donald Trump deciding not to testify a second time, the defense is over. And the case now moves to the judge, Arthur Ngoron, an unconventional New York judge, Uh, as the New York Times puts it, about this local jurist, he will determine the future of Trump's role in the family business. I mean, the stakes are really high here for Donald Trump, not just in terms of his reputation, but in terms of his ability to do business in the future. Judges already, you know, this judge, who the former president attacks every other day as a Trump-hating judge, ruled that Donald Trump inflated his net worth. The AG was asking for a fine of $250 million. She may raise that according to this story. She also asked the Trump, excuse me, the judge to bar Trump from running a business in the state. Imagine that. I mean, you know, I mean, Trump obviously has properties around the world. Hotels, golf courses, you know, some of them are just branded with his name. But New York, you know, that's how he became famous. That's how he got The Apprentice. He was the New York real estate guy, Trump Tower, and uh, these other iconic skyscrapers in Manhattan. Built by the man from Queens. So, the judge is expected to rule... Next month, there'll still be closing arguments. But now, legal experts are saying, according to the Times, that the judge may have lacked the authority to dissolve some of Trump's companies, which was an initial part of the ruling. An appeals court last week granted Trump's request to hold off and, in fact, freeze the trial while he appeals Judge Angoran's ruling. And a lot of this, of course, I mean, you know, Trump's not expecting to get off lightly here, so he's building a lot of things as part of the case for appeal. Interesting that if Judge Angoran has found to have exceeded his authority, that'd be a problem for him and the whole case. Uh, speaking of the 45th president, he had this post. The Biden administration is running on the fumes of the great success of the Trump administration. Without us, this thing would have crashed to levels never seen before. And if we're not elected, we'll have a depression, the likes of which I don't believe anybody has ever seen, maybe 1929. So here's the former president of the United States saying the current president of the United States, if he wins this election, is going to bring about a rerun of the Great Depression. The irony here is Trump is saying this 
on the second day in a row where the Dow hit an all-time high, the market hit an all-time high. Obviously, Biden inherited not just a pandemic, but all the job losses that went with the pandemic. And you could say, well, maybe he brought a lot of these jobs back. But at the same time, Joe Biden also has created a lot of jobs with these spending programs. I mean, what he basically does now is fly around the country and says, here's more money for high-speed rail in California, and here's more money for, you know, to rebuild the, the infrastructure here. It was a bipartisan bill, the infrastructure bill, and it wasn't just that bill. There were other bills as well, one of which went through strictly on a Democratic Party line vote. Okay, what about the Ukraine funding? Politico says, in story number three, that the talks were stalled. Remember, this is all about what immigration restrictions the Dems are willing to accept to get this package deal. But by yesterday, Chuck Schumer felt they'd made enough progress to shorten the recess. You mean they're not just going to bail out and go home and say the heck with it? I don't know. The board of discussions are still exceedingly complicated in Politico's view. And there's no guarantee that these negotiators in the Senate will be able to make a deal. But Democrats felt it was too dangerous to leave town. By the way, the House went home. The Speaker dismissed them. And if there were a deal in the Senate, would the House come back to vote on it? Could it even pass the House? And there's a little bit of deja vu here because, you know, we hear the negotiations have broken down. No, they're coming back. No, they're optimistic. No, they're not so optimistic. You know, it just pisses me off. Get it done. Come up with something that both parties can accept. Is it really that impossible for Congress to agree on anything? And then Israel can get its military aid and Ukraine can get its military aid and more money for border security. But on the other hand, some Republicans say they're not even close. You're getting these different uh, takes. Senator Roger Marshall of Kansas saying it'll take weeks or months to go through it once we get it in writing. Months? Is Congress capable of acting quickly on anything? The only time I've ever seen Congress move really quickly, this is decades ago, is when both houses approved a bill to allow the televising of home NFL games when the local stadium was sold out. Now that, they moved on. Tom Cotton. We're still very far apart. There's no deal imminent. Some modest progress has been made. I don't know which side you're going to believe. It seems to me the skeptics may have it right because if Republicans don't agree to this, there is no deal. There is no compromise. And more weeks go by where our ally Israel and the country we're trying to save from a brutal Russian takeover, Ukraine, Ukraine particularly in danger after all that the brave Ukrainians have sacrificed. You know, it's basically internal politics. 
I don't blame Republicans for trying to get the best deal they can and exercise the most leverage they can on the border, which, as I said yesterday, is basically an open border right now. But come on, why were you sent to Washington? Just to squabble endlessly? Meanwhile, the House yesterday passing an $886 billion defense bill. After going, after vanquishing, I guess I would say, a revolt from the far right, or at least the hardliners, over the exclusion of restrictions they had sought to abortion access, transgender care, and racial diversity policies at the Pentagon. Overall vote, 310 to 118. It was a bipartisan bill, obviously. Many conservatives, says the Times, outraged at the compromise because they love to fight over these hot-button issues. And those furthest to the right did pressure the House Republicans, the other House Republicans, to load up the bill with these measures to shutter the military's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, ban transgender health services, outlaw drag shows. Well, that's clearly one of the main issues facing our country. Look, they can fight for everything they want, but you only pass bills, and nobody wants to vote against a defense bill, because what happens when you run for re-election? Wouldn't even vote to pay the salaries of our brave men and women in uniform. Nobody wants that. So they fought and lost on these various social issues, including abortion access. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Let me move on to number four. Megan McCain, who I've been friendly with for a long time, says she's going to be consulting her lawyers consulting her lawyers about being libeled on The View. This story has gotten picked up everywhere. I mean, every place from British publications to Yahoo to a whole bunch of American outlets. Now, I'll just remind you, Megan McCain hasn't been on The View for years. She did work there for four tumultuous years, where in her view, she was battling for conservative positions. There were a lot of blow-ups. But she's moved on. She's doing other things now. She's got a new podcast. And yet, the ladies of The View, not so ladylike, they were talking about Hunter Biden. Well, Hunter Biden was peddling influence, using his father's last name. Peddling influence. Yeah, Hunter Biden got a lot of money. I mean, leave aside everything else. Impeach for inquiry, Hunter Biden and his partners got a lot of money from China, from Ukraine. And, you know, as I always bring up, there's an email saying, I know this is because my last name is Biden. So Anna Navarro kicks this off by saying, look, did Hunter Biden influence pedal on his last name? Yes, he did. So did half of Washington. People sitting at this table did it. So the various co-hosts were kind of stunned. Who at this table peddled on their last name? And Ana Navarro says, I'm not talking about currently. 
So every Megan's name was never mentioned, but everybody in the world who's ever followed the view knows exactly who they were talking about. So here is Megan McCain's tweet. I don't understand why my former colleagues at the view at ABC bring me up and slander me on an almost weekly basis. It has been years. Move on. I have. I've never been accused of a crime in my life. I'm a patriotic American. I would never and have never influence peddled in my life, let alone with foreign adversaries. Not all politicians' children are the same. And I am no Hunter Biden. All accusations are absurd, defamatory, and slanderous. Well, it is unfair to compare her to Hunter Biden. She's not being paid by companies that want to buy influence just because she is the daughter of of John McCain. And by the way, did her last name help her initially trying to break into the business? Yeah. Like anybody who's born with a famous parent, it's not something you can do anything about, but you don't make it. In television, in punditry, uh, or any of that, you don't make it unless you've got talent. You might get an audition if it was the son or daughter of a movie star, for example. You might get to read for a couple of parts. But if you haven't got it, what it takes in any of these businesses, you don't last long. And, you know, Meghan McCain worked for Fox, I've interviewed her a number of times. She then got hired by The View, and she helped the ratings. The View can't just be an all-liberal show, though it often comes off like that. We're now the only people who are allowed to be conservative on The View are anti-Trump conservatives. So that's Meghan McCain punching back with the style that she has, which is she's not going to let people insult her or trample on her. And I think the view looks awful here. It looks like they're obsessed with her and they can't get over it. Story number five. As I mentioned yesterday, Washington's pro football and pro hockey teams have made a deal in principle to move out of the downtown arena and go to Virginia. And a lot of this had to do with some very deft lobbying by Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. It's, you know, I I jokingly said, well, this is not the Brooklyn Dodgers moving to LA, but it is a blow to the city. People are angry at the owner, Ted Leonsis, disappointed, depressed. You know, it's, Washington still has a baseball team, the Nationals, that play in the city. But it's hard to overstate how important, you know, Washington is a city where most people are from somewhere else. And just as the team formerly known as the Redskins helps bring the community together, so too was having in this wonderful downtown arena with lots of urban redevelopment there, the Wizards and the Capitals. So here's Washington Post columnist Candace Buckner, just to give you the flavor of how ticked off people are. The billionaire said, hold me accountable, and then he slinked out the side door. 
just like he's leaving the downtown building he said he wanted to stay in for at least another 15 years, and just like he's abandoning the city that once inspired his aspirations, Ted Leonsis uttered some sentimental waste like that about five years ago. On a summer day of celebrations, when tens of thousands of people gathered on the National Mall to celebrate a championship by the Washington Capitals hockey team, everything seemed great. But on a cold Wednesday morning inside a pop-up tent somewhere in suburbia, all the District of Columbia could see was betrayal. There he was, the owner of the Wizards and the Stanley Cup champion Capitals, elevated on another stage and meandering through disingenuous claims about uniting communities and being a good neighbor. But Leonsis is making these promises to the Potomac Yard section of Alexandria. He no longer wants the light of his benevolence to shine on Chinatown and Gallery Place in downtown D.C. When the Capital One Arena opened in 1997, it revitalized the neighborhood. It's not hard to imagine it regressing into a ghost town. Like a child spoiled by a lifetime of yes, and as the possessor of the shiny toy that all the other neighborhood kids want to play with, Leonsis snatched up his teams and left for a construction lot across the Potomac. And, says Candace Buckner, taking the city's soul with it. In Potomac Yard, they'll play across the street from a target. All right, is she looking down her nose at um, Alexandria, Virginia? Sure. She's mad. She's furious. I'm pretty mad, too. I don't write a sports column for the Washington Post, but it, it really is hard to overstate. You know, look, lots of urban areas with big league teams. The teams sometimes then move out to, you know, suburban Dallas or suburban, you know, you could go through the list of cities. But as I said, this is really wounded, D.C., because there was an arena built with city help just for these two teams. And there are concerts there, and obviously it's, you know, it's a landmark downtown right on the edge of Washington's Chinatown. All right, as promised, a bonus story that I could spend far more time on. I think it's a really important story. Number six, James Bennett used to work for the New York Times. Then he left, uh, left after a successful career and became the editor of The Atlantic for about a decade and did very well there in terms of increasing its digital footprint and just, you know, making its articles much more, um, you know, The Atlantic was always a great magazine, but making its articles more part of the conversation, let's say, the journalistic slash political conversation and cultural conversation as well. But then the New York Times brought him back as the editorial page editor. And you probably know what happened after that. He tried to open up the Times, liberal newspaper, liberal editorial page, to more conservative voices to complement the very liberal voices that most of the regular columnists were and many of the contributors. And then came the famous Tom Cotton op-ed in 2020 
just an online op-ed that went through all this editing and they sent it back for drafts because he was arguing about using the military to try to deal with urban violence. This was the year, of course, of George Floyd and many other infamous cases. And at first, the publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, backed his editorial page editor. It was his He said, this is great that you did this to try to open it up. And then the woke newsroom went crazy. Sulzberger changed his mind. And he fired James Bennett. Here it is three years later, and Bennett has just delivered a 17,000-word piece for The Economist. Well-written, carefully considered, thoughtful, and very tough on The New York Times. Here's some of what he says. I think this is really important. And you notice it was also the former editor, Jill Abramson, once she left the Times, she wrote a book and said, yeah, the Times has a liberal bias and that's a problem. And is anti-Trump at that time that Trump was president, I believe. The Times, writes Bennett, was slow to break to his readers. There was less to Trump's ties to Russia than they were hoping and more to Hunter Biden's laptop. That Trump might be right that COVID came from a Chinese lab. One of the newsroom editors Bennett says, urged me to start attaching trigger warnings to pieces by conservatives. It had not occurred to him how this would stigmatize certain colleagues or what it would say to the world about the Times' own bias. He also writes, I think many Times staff have little idea how closed their world has become. He says there's a hypocrisy here that is transparent to conservatives, dangerous to liberals, and bad for the country. By the way, all the editing that, that this piece, uh, and some people now say, yeah, there was like one minor factual error. Uh, well, you know, that Tom Cotton piece was so badly flawed. And, it, and some said it, it should have been edited like a three-month investigation by the newsroom would be edited. And it's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's one online op-ed piece. Do you think the liberal pieces are subjected to anything like this kind of editing? No. He talks about a rising tide of intolerance among the reporters, the engineers, the business staff, even the subscribers. Illiberal journalists, says James Bennett, are not out to achieve social justice as the knock-on effect of pursuing truth. They want to pursue it head-on. The term objectivity to them is code for ignoring the poor and weak and cozying up to power. And at another point, Bennett says, to the horror of the newsroom, the horror, Trump won the presidency. Many times staff members, scared, angry, assumed the Times was supposed to help lead the resistance. And there is no question that that is how many of the Times view it, not everybody. Lead the resistance. And the Times obviously is not the only major news organization that is so opposed to now Donald Trump, front-runner in the Republican Party, despite the four indictments, and beating President Biden in a whole number of polls. But this, The fact that he won was a horror, and the staffers were scared and angry, and they were going to lead the resistance. 
And that's why Salzberger had to sacrifice James Bennett, it's made very clear here, to mollify the woke newsroom. In fact, uh, Bennett writes that Salzberger told him that the, the day after this happened was the biggest sick day in the history of the New York Times, people calling in sick because they were so angry or disgusted or you know, were ready to join the resistance. This is a really important piece by a really smart guy. And that's why I've added it to the podcast. And maybe I'll have more to say about it next week, uh, having now plowed through all 17,000 words. You know, I read a lot of stuff so you don't have to, because you don't have time. I'm sure you read some things that I don't see. But I try to bring as much of this to the podcast as I can. Um, things you might not have seen, might not have had the same interpretation, might have just seen a headline. And it gives me a chance to pop off. All right. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.